Today's sermon text is Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is God's word. Thank you. Again, good morning, everyone. Um, Man, we're in a series right now on the book of Proverbs. And one of the things that we're dealing with right now is the apparent assurances and promises that are made in the book of Proverbs. Uh, Promises like long life, uh, health and healing to our bones, um, uh, psychological stability and and peace of mind, um, kids who don't go astray but stay committed to God and live their lives for him. Um, having favor with God and man. Um, Another promise, such a seeming promise, is uh, that if we honor God with with our wealth or with the substance of our wealth, our assets, then um, God will make sure that our vats overflow with wine and our barns are filled with plenty. And these promises sound really, really great, and they're just in the first 12 verses of of Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. The problem with this is that, as we talked about last week, and I really, really want to review last week bad, but I don't have the time. Uh, The problem with that is many of us in our lives have come in contact with people whose lives don't match up with those assurances. Um, Last week, I asked everyone, would you raise your hand if you know someone who is a godly and Jesus-loving person who has suffered affliction? And almost every person raised their hand. Both services. Almost every person did. And so that brings to question, what about these assurances and promises that are in Proverbs? What do we do with that? And then I took you through, uh, for a few minutes, uh, actually all the sermon last week, through from cover to cover of the Bible. We're going to do that again today. Not the same sermon, but cover to cover of the Bible. And we identified some snapshots of biblical figures who were holy and devoted and committed people who suffered great affliction in their lives. From guys like Joseph uh, in the book of Genesis, who was sold into slavery, to the apostle Paul, who was a holy man, devoted to God, and yet suffered so many things from being stoned and left for dead to being shipwrecked 
and being cast in prison and spending years of his life in prison. I mean, lots of uh, beatings and uh, being, uh, be, being ridiculed and scorned and his name being dragged through the mud. And then, of course, we come to Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior, who suffered tremendous affliction and who obviously lives a perfectly godly and holy life. And so what do we do with this when we come up against these verses that make these apparent promises? I will not satisfactorily answer that question today. That's taking several weeks to answer that. And I'm still not certain it's going to really satisfy us, but I'm giving it my best shot. Um, so I'm going to move ahead today, and if you were not here last week, you really, really, really need to listen to last week's message, uh, not so you can get something out of today, but because I'm dealing with this question in, in phases. I simply have come in contact with too many people who love Jesus or have waning faith or apathetic faith in Jesus because they feel let down by Jesus. They read the scriptures. The Bible seems to make promises that if they spend their money a certain way and live their life a certain way and become people of integrity and holiness and righteousness, then, then they'll get all of these good things. They'll have a great payoff. And for a lot of folks, that doesn't happen. What's up with that? And so we're attempting to answer that and wade into this tension uh, beginning a couple of weeks ago through next week. So... I do want to fast forward, though, to something, uh, to Ephesians chapter 1. Spend a minute here. Because in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, we're going to come back next week and really dig into this. We're going to dive into Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14 next week. But it is my opinion that in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, that Paul gives us the Magna Carta of what it looks like to be blessed in the New Covenant. I think this is an, an encapsulation of what all of the New Testament teaches in terms of what it looks like when God has his hand on your life. You have favor with God and you are blessed by him. And from the outset, I want to make it really clear who can have this. Anybody. Anybody. You don't have to jump through hoops. As a matter of fact, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says this, says it this way, that we were dead in our trespasses, but God being rich in mercy, and as you read on, raised us up with Christ. We did nothing to merit this. We did nothing. Uh, lots of Bible reading didn't save us. Going to church didn't save us. Growing up in the, quote, right family didn't save us. Grace hit our lives because God is merciful. God is merciful. And if you have affections for Jesus now, even if they are mustard seed in size, it is a work of God's great grace in your life. You didn't get there on your own. You had nothing to do with it. It is a gift from God. That's my basically uh, uh, my reading of the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Then you go to Ephesians chapter 1, and in Ephesians chapter 1, again, we're going to dive into this next week, but for today, I want to make 11 statements about Ephesians 1. Because 11 times in Ephesians 1, in verses 1 through 14, in the first 14 verses, 11 times, Paul uses the phrase, in 
Christ. Speaking of us who are in Christ. This is what he says the 11 times he talks about us who are in Christ. This is what he says. He says that first he calls us saints, regardless of our behavior, regardless of our addictive tendencies, regardless of our brokenness. He calls those of us who desire to leave our sinfulness and our brokenness and follow Jesus, he calls us saints. And then he says this about all of us. We are faithful in Christ. In Christ. You can't be faithful unless you're in Christ. He says we are blessed in Christ Jesus. You can't be blessed unless you're in Christ. He says that God chose us in Christ. You can't be chosen by God unless you're in Christ. You can't be. Then he says, in love. In love, God predestined us for adoption through Christ. You can't be adopted by God unless you're in Christ. You can't be reconciled to him. He says, we are blessed in the beloved, capital B, beloved. We are blessed in Christ. You can't be blessed unless you are in Christ, who is the blessed one. He is blessed. God gave us wisdom and insight into his purposes that he set forth in Christ. So you can't see and understand the grand master plan of God to bring about redemption and healing and restoration to all of the cosmos unless you are in Christ. You can't see it. It looks crazy without Jesus' eyes. It looks like God's losing, but he's not. He's not. We, will, we are and will be united in Christ. Now remember, he's writing a letter. If, if, remember, maybe you don't know this, but he's writing a letter to a community that is struggling with racial tension. Jews and Gentiles are not getting along in the churches at Ephesus. And he says, you are one in Christ, and you one day, at Jesus' second coming, when the fullness of time has come, all of the things that divide us, the envy, the strife, the jealousy, the hatred, the racial animosity, all of the things that we carry, all the brokenness that we have, all these things are going to melt away in Jesus. All of those old, stubborn bigotries, they're going to disappear. That only happens in Christ. He says, in Him, in Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Mine says reception. What does yours say? Yeah, he he changed it. My spell check didn't catch that. So we have reception. We do have reception, but also redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we have an inheritance. We only get an inheritance when we're in Christ. We also hope in Christ. You don't have a right to hope for a better future unless you're in Christ. Because only Jesus is going to bring about a better future. And this is why we say this a lot in our church. We give a lot of like eschatology. That's the, uh, uh, a, uh, a fancy word for end time theology. And good eschatology, regardless of where you land on what uh, micro theology that that's part of, that, that that entails, regardless of where you are, the eschatology, end time theology, the Bible teaches us that in the fullness of time, Jesus will return. He will banish from the face of the earth everything that is satanic, everything that leads to suffering, and everything that leads to sin. He will recreate the earth when he takes heaven and earth and slams them together and makes the new creation. 
He will resurrect those of us who have died in Christ and he will give us new bodies and we will populate this earth and live on this earth for 10,000 years plus eternity. This is what our hope is. If you are not in Christ, you don't have that hope. You don't have that hope. And in Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit who guarantees that we're going to be there when Jesus returns. This is what Ephesians 1 Verses 13 through 14 teaches. Eleven times we are in Christ. Now I'm going to talk to you next week about the significance of all those in Christs. But I want to back up to the beginning and we'll end with this very, 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 very long illustration. Okay, so like super long. It took up the whole service last time. So um, I had a guy that wanted to meet with me this week. He's a, he's a young, young guy. And um, when I say young... I'm 21, so he's like 18 or something. So he wanted to meet with me this week, and um, he got some really good advice. Uh, he went through, recently went through a tough breakup, uh, dated a gal for a while, and he's hurting. And somebody in his life gave him some good wisdom. And this person said, before you do anything else, before you date anybody else, before you think about college, before you think about anything else, I want you to figure out who you are. Now, it doesn't escape me that setting up a meeting with the pastor, and I don't know why I did that. I am a pastor. So um, uh, setting up a meeting with the pastor, um, uh, it, it doesn't escape me how intimidating that might be. Um, not because I'm intimidating, because I think that I'm really, really comfy and warm and cozy and furry and sweet and all that stuff. And um, furry, uh, metaphorically speaking. So, and um, I'm the kind of guy that when I'm leading a community group and we ask somebody to pray for the meal, everybody has a corporate panic attack because they're all expecting me to theologically assess their prayer. They like think I'm sitting there with like a systematic theology book. You know, did he get that right? Lord Jesus, yep, 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 yep. Next, uh, pr- bless this food. Oh, yeah, bless the food. <laughs> Food's already blessed, you know. I mean, it's, you know, well, <laughs> we thank God for the food. You know, like the people think I'm doing that, you know. So they're always fearing that I'm assessing their prayers. But so it doesn't escape me how maybe it took us some courage for him to come meet with me, sit in my weird office with my huge whiteboard in front of him and say, can you tell me who I am? And that's what he said to me. And I said, dude, I can tell you who you are. So I got three markers out, rolled up my sleeves, and I drew his life in front of him on my whiteboard. I don't think he was tricking me at the end. He may have been. He may have been. He's kind of a smart guy. But he was sitting there at the end looking at the whiteboard going, I've never looked at it that way. And I said, dude, that is you. This is your story. And so I thought, man, how many people really get this? Because when we talk about being in Christ, I'm going to kind of tease out what that looks like today. So if you bear with me, I'm going to be talking for about 20 minutes straight, 20 or 60 minutes straight, one or the other, on, uh, on what you are and what I am in Christ. Are you ready? There's going to be a lot of information. So don't try to write down everything I say. You might want to take your phone out and just take snapshots. I got slides. 
Um, but bear with me because I really want you to know this because this is huge in my life. Huge in my life. So uh, the first slide is this. First slide is this. Oh, please don't step off this stage. I almost did uh, the first service. Um, human history began with this thing called creation. Raise your hand if you've heard of that, creation. If you've heard of creation. Heard of it. Nobody's heard of that creation? Some, some of you haven't. Some of you, I swear, I'm going to get you one day. I'm going to get you to get that hand in the air. Um, anybody like candy? Raise your hand. Okay. Got, got a couple of you. Okay, so creation. Cre- God creates the heavens and the earth. You can read about that in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. 1 and 2. And in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God creates the whole cosmos. Let there be light. Let there be uh, vegetation, fish, crawling things, livestock, all that stuff. Trees, plants, everything. And at the top of the creation, he created humanity. And he gave humanity a responsibility. He gave us this raw form of a planet. And he said, I want you, humanity, to live in this planet, to be fruitful, to multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And some of the best theologians that I've read all agree that implicit in this was the mandate to make this earth not just livable, but there's something below that, in that. Make culture. Make beauty. Do something gorgeous to honor God. So this brings about the birth of art and music and good food and towns and villages and cities and love and marriage and children and careers and all the things that we can do together as a human civilization to make this world beautiful. We were not in a broken state at this time. It was just live here and make this place awesome. But something happened in the second stage and that is called the fall. Maybe you've heard of that. And these two people, Adam and Eve were tricked, they were tempted by this serpent. We don't know where this serpent came from. Um, The Bible's not even clear on who it was, but there was this serpent, and it was clear that this serpent was already living in adversity to God, in rebellion to God. And God had told humanity, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't do it. You can eat of the tree of life. You can eat of every other tree. But don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Obey me. Honor me. At the heart of creation is still the cultivated impulse to honor God and worship Him and obey Him. To live in submission to Him. God didn't make a bunch of androids. He made walking, talking, living, breathing people. And I can't explain the tension of human sovereignty and human cho- uh, God's sovereignty and human choice. Smarter people can't explain that than me. But it's clear, I think, that we had a choice in that text. Don't do this, do this. And Adam and Eve chose to follow their own fleshly passions, their own impulses. And they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, basically telling God, we don't think that you know what's best for our lives. We think we know what's best. So we're going to follow our own wisdom rather than yours. And this plunged all of humanity into rebellion. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 3. And then in Genesis chapter 4, there's this snapshot, this vignette. It's just one story of a whole 
a whole myriad of catastrophes that began to take place in humanity. And that story was the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. And we see one story that displays the effects of the fall where a brother killed a brother. And God said, where's your brother? His blood's crying out to me from the ground. Am I my brother's keeper, Cain uh, hardenly says? So what what is he telling us there? What does this say about humanity? We don't want to take responsibility for one another. We don't don't want to live other-centered lives and care for one another. We don't see this world as something that we can give to one another, but rather something that we can take for ourselves. And this this impulse is in all of us, all of us. Pastors, elders, members, accountants, everyone. Lawyers, especially lawyers. I'm kidding, uh, if you're a lawyer. Uh, the effects of the fall are profound in so many of us and all of us. And so we see this, this evil and this suffering begin to be birthed. And then we go to the next slide. And in the next slide, we see God finally, several chapters later, he's so fed up with human civilization that he decides to judge it. Yowzers. I mean, it must have been really bad. But he does something extreme and radical, and I'll be honest with you, this assaults my sensitivities. But God judges humanity. And everyone dies. Except for one family. That God preserved. The same flood that killed humanity saved in an ark Noah and his family. And we see God starting again with one person, one family, in order to cultivate a human civilization that honors him. And it gets from bad to worse really quick. Noah plants a garden, a vineyard. He drinks from it and gets totally wasted. I mean, wasted out of his mind. Maybe he's got some PTSD from the flood. I don't know. But he's in his tent and one of his sons goes in the tent and dishonors him in some way. The scripture's not clear in what happened. We don't know if there was some a terrible act that took place or if he um, uh, dishonored his father by telling all of his brothers about, about his nakedness because Noah's nakedness tent, he's wasted, drunk out of his mind and then there is a judgment that there's a curse that takes place there. And so we see again a person in the garden that God gives a command to and then we see another person naked in a garden that God gave a command to that fails again. And so human civilization continues to go down, circle the toilet bowl, so to speak. And um, we see, uh, we move on through the book of Genesis and we come to the Tower of Babel. And it's at the Tower of Babel that humanity in its own wisdom seeks, um, uh, seeks to know God in its own wisdom and find God in its own way rather than submitting to God. And so God uh, turns his eyes once again to another figure in human history, a real live person This guy's name was Abram, who later became Abraham. And Abram was this man who lived uh, in a land called Ur, which is modern-day Iraq. And God called Abram and he said, I want you to leave your father's house and go to the land that I'm giving you. It's called the promised land. Go to the land that I'm giving you. And so now remember, I'm telling this to a kid in my office who wants to know who he is. Just remember that. So... God calls Abraham, Abraham obeys God, leaves his father's house, and God one day tells Abraham, step outside of your tent and look at the stars in the sky and the sand in the ground in front of you. There's a lot of it, isn't there? Yeah, 
A lot of stars. There's no city light to, you know, uh, to, to bleed it out of the sky. Um, he saw tons of stars in the Milky Way, a myriad of, of grains of sand. And he said, your family, your offspring is going to be as numerous as the stars of the sky, the stars of the heavens, and the sand that's on the seashore. And Abraham said, wait a second. I'm in my 90s. I'm not having kids anytime soon. Plus, my wife is barren. She can't have kids. What do we do about this? Eventually, Abraham came around and he believed God. Despite his old age, despite the barrenness of his wife, he came around and he believed God in the face of impossibility. And God said, Abraham, you are now righteous. So God found a righteous person to kickstart a new kind of race, a new kind of ethnic group that would bring honor to him. But here's the kicker. Because God says, he didn't just say, I'm going to give you a bunch of kids and descendants that are going to be really, really awesome. Your kids and descendants, your family is going to be a blessing to all of the families of the earth. This isn't just about you and yours. This is about a mission that I've assigned to you, going all the way back to the creation mandate to fill the earth and subdue it, fill that earth with godly people. Abraham, you are to fill this earth with godly people. I'm going to begin with your family, and then your family is going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And that's how I'm going to redeem all of human civilization. And because Abraham believed that, in the face of inconceivable odds... Abraham said, okay, I'm I'm buying what you're selling, God. And God said, you're righteous. You're righteous. You're mine. And so Abraham had a son. Anybody know who Abraham's son was? Isaac. Isaac had a son. Anybody know his name? Jacob. Jacob. God changed Jacob's name to? Israel. Israel. And Israel had how many sons? Twelve sons. Israel became the nation of Israel with its twelve tribes that all came from the twelve sons who all came from Jacob or Israel, who came from Isaac and Rebekah and who came from Abraham. Are you all seeing this? Remember, I'm telling this young man what the meaning of his life is. And I'm telling you the meaning of your life too. So, you've got this new nation, Israel. When we say nation in the scripture, whenever you see that word nation in the Bible, don't think Canada, um, Iran, China, Australia. Don't think, don't think nations like that. Think ethnic groups. Think ethnic groups. That's what the scripture is talking about, ethnic groups. Races of people. Which is why racism is so evil and antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any kind of racial bigotry is a complete rejection of God and God's plan for human civilization. Racism is totally and entirely 100% evil and demonic and is is, is a gift of Satan to our world. Racism is. What's great is, is that it's not the unpardonable sin and you can be forgiven and restored and grow to see the races all around you in different ethnic groups 
the same way God does, with compassion and love. And you can look at your own race with humility. Humility. And so you've got this ethnic group, the Israelites, the Hebrews. Oh, man, Hebrews. And then you go to the next slide. And the next slide is Jesus. Now, that's a big jump. Now, I've got, I'm tracing scripture here. I want to submit to you that the rest of the Bible is about the book of Genesis. The rest of the Bible is about the book of Genesis. One of my favorite theologians says this, that the New Testament is the footnotes of the Old Testament. The New Testament tells us how to engage with the Old Testament. Genesis is, contains everything about what God wants to do with the earth. That's why in the new creation, the new creation that I talked about a while ago looks a lot like the original creation. A righteous and godly people filling the earth and subduing it. What does the Bible say? I think it's Hosea that says, that uh, the prophet Hosea prophesied that the, that the world, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the, as the, uh, as the waters cover the seas. This is what God is doing in the earth. And so you've got the Israelites, but the Israelites hit a bump on the road. If you remember, Israel found themselves in Egyptian slavery. Egyptian slavery. Everybody okay? Remember, I'm talking about your life, your story. This is who you are if you follow Jesus. The Israelites find themselves in Egyptian slavery. And God sends this man named Moses, who comes along hundreds of years later, about 400 years later to be exact. And God says to Moses, go to Egypt, where you grew up, and I want you to deliver my people, the Israelites, who were in bondage. And so Moses goes into Egypt. Long story short, there were 10 terrible plagues, like billions and trillions of frogs and flies and all this stuff that happened, like really terrible stuff, stuff that would make me get in the fetal position and cry, cry like a little baby. And, and so all these things happen in Egypt. And the Israelites are led by Moses out of Egypt. Pharaoh's chasing them. God splits the Red Sea. They cross. Pharaoh's armies are drowned. And then we come to a place where there's this big mountain. And on this mountain, darkness and clouds have covered and concealed this mountain. And there's lightning flashes and there's thunder, really, really loud thunder. And there's a trumpet blast. And God says, hey, Moses, come up here. That's scary. Way scarier than a preacher's office. And so Moses goes up that mountain, and that's where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. Now, and the rest of the law. Now, a lot of us think that what God's really interested in is if we behave ourselves. And so he gives us rules so that we behave ourselves. There is nothing, that there couldn't be anything more untrue. God did not give Israel the law to save them. They were already saved. They were already redeemed by God, taken out of Egypt. Their great, 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 great grandfather is Abraham, who is righteous, who was called out by God. They were God's people. But the problem is, is that they spent four centuries in slavery and slavery dehumanized them and they forgot who they were. They still looked like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they didn't act like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh, the God of the Hebrew Scriptures, was a foggy, foggy figure in their minds. Shrouded in history, forgotten history. And God introduces himself to them and he gives them the law. And when you hear the word law, think about it this way. 
When you think Ten Commandments or law, think Constitution. Constitution. We have a Constitution in our country. We often appeal to the Constitution when we talk about law, when things happen that are fair or unfair. We say, hey, the Constitution says this or that, or the Constitution doesn't say that, so you can't do that. It's Constitution. The Constitution is sort of defines us as American citizens. Israel's constitution was the law of Moses, and Moses gave them this law so that as God's holy and chosen people, they would be shaped into a new kind of people, a peculiar people, that all the ethnic groups around them would look at and go, whoa, what is up with them? That is a strange country. Did you see the other day when fire came down on their like worship shrine, the tabernacle, that's what they call it? That was crazy. Did you see that? Yeah. I don't know what to do with that. And look at how they're gathered around and look at all their worship rituals that they have. They sacrifice animals to God and, and they do all these other things. These, and look at the way that they behave themselves and the laws that they have. This was to set them apart as God's people. It didn't make them God's people. They already were. But it set them apart as God's people. But as we know, they failed. They didn't live up to the law. They rejected God. Hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years were filled with sexual immorality, adultery, evil and wicked kings that led Israel, pagan idol worship where they rejected the God who saved them from, from Egypt. And so God did what he said he would do. He punished them. In the, seven, in the, in the uh, eighth century, eight, about eight, um, almost 800 years before Jesus, God allowed this Assyrian army to invade the northern kingdom of Israel, obliterated it. We've never heard from it since. The southern kingdom of Judah, where we get the word Jews from, the southern kingdom, about 150 years later, was invaded by Babylon. They were the new big, ugly, bad boy on the block. They were the new bully. Babylon invaded, and while they weren't obliterated, their, Jerusalem was, the temple was annihilated, and m- many people were killed, and there were some people who were carried off, about 50,000 people were carried off into exile in Babylon. This is where you can read, and uh, I, think it's, uh, I think it's Psalm 139, uh, but they talk about how they're by a river in Babylon, and they hung their harps in trees when the Babylonians were ridiculing them saying, sing us a song. And they said, how can we sing a song? How can we worship God in this? We don't have the temple. Who are we? Has God abandoned us? And there's this amazing story that happens uh, before Israel, as Israel is being carried away into bondage. There's this Old Testament prophet named Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a really, really weird guy. And Ezekiel had this vision. And Ezekiel said, Here's what I see. Israel's being carried off into exile. They're seeing the temple smoldering. It's gone. It's obliterated. What about their relationship with God? Has God abandoned them? What's next? Are they going to just disappear and be forgotten by history? And Ezekiel says, no, 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 no. You are God's people. God is punishing you, but God has not abandoned you. He said, as a matter of fact, God showed me his throne. And his throne was on top of this big sheet And under the sheet were these wheels. And he said, they're like wheels within wheels. This throne of God can go anywhere. He's not staying at a burning temple. He's coming with you 
to your exile. And he's going to be with you while you're in your exile. And he's going to bring you back to the land of promise. God is good. So God's taken a guy like Abraham who believed him in the face of inconceivable odds. And I'm wondering how many of you are sitting here going, man, God, I don't know, man. I don't know if God wants me. I am so messed up. All you've got to do is believe that Jesus loves you and wants you. And his grace will collapse like an avalanche on your life and you will never, ever, ever dig your way out of his grace, ever. All you have to do is believe. And he points his finger at you and says, you are righteous. You are mine. You are part of my people now. And so 400 years goes by. They go back and rebuild a temple but it wasn't like Solomon's temple, which is why when they dedicated the new temple, uh, Zerubbabel's temple, they called it, the older people wept who remembered what Solomon's temple looked like. They wept. They mourned. It's not the same. It's not the same. 400 years goes by. Silence. No prophetic voices. And then this strange man who wore uh, hairy garments and ate locusts, and honey in the wilderness named John the Baptist said, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. You feel abandoned by God, but guess what? The rule and the authority and the power of God is coming. Get ready. And the bringer of this kingdom is going to be the king of the kingdom. And his name is Jesus Actually, he didn't know his name, Jesus, the Messiah. And then Jesus says, oh, there he is. Behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. I'm not even worthy. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. And so Jesus comes, and what does Jesus do? He becomes the one faithful Israelite, making up for centuries of unfaithfulness, centuries of idolatry, centuries of sexual immorality, centuries of rebellion against God, actually millennia because his blood, when he sacrificed willingly, covers all of that story from the fall all the way forward to the end of human history as we know it when Jesus returns. And if we put our faith in him, and this is where in my office on that whiteboard, I drew a really rugged arrow from Jesus back to Abraham. Because if you put your faith in Jesus, the scriptures say, you become a son or a daughter of Abraham, which means that you are called with Abraham's calling now. So I want you to shut your eyes for a moment. Don't go to sleep. I want you to imagine yourself in an iron, maybe an uh, iron era tent in the Middle East, in the sand, there's a breeze blowing, and you come out of your tent, and you open your eyes. Now open your eyes, everybody, and look up at all the stars. Look at them all. Because this is you. This, I'm not like playing mind tricks here. This is you. If you have faith in Jesus, this is you. And I want you to look at the ground in front of you to imagine all the sand on the seashore. And I want you to remember God looking at Abraham and saying, I have called you to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, which means that you and yours are now more this than you are anything else. 
you are more this story than you are Republican. You are more this story than you are Democrat. You are more, I'm not saying you're not those things. I'm not saying there's no room for those things. But that's not what defines you. You are different now. You are part of a new race, the New Testament says. A new ethnic group. You are part of Abraham's family. Even though you don't have the olive skin of an ancient Mesopotamian figure like Abraham, you are more Abraham than you are American. You are part of his family. And so we come to the next slide. I'm almost done. I told you there's going to be a lot, guys. Jesus and then the church. Because everybody who becomes a child of Abraham is part of this new Israel where Jews and Gentiles put their faith in Jesus and they become the new people of God. The only way you can be reconciled to God, Paul says, is through faith in Jesus. The only way. And so we become children of Abraham. And so at this point, I erase that and then I put some... Now the next slide is the new creation. I've already told you about that. Let's go to the next one. Let's go to the next slide now. That's you. Because you are part of the church. You are the church. Church is not where you meet. It's who you are. And because you are the church, this is true about you if you follow Jesus. Check this out. Next, last slide. You are a follower of Jesus. You are a child of Abraham. You are a minister of reconciliation. I'm taking pictures. Go ahead. All right, so you're a child of Abraham. You're a minister of reconciliation. You are the church. You are a saint. You are blessed in Christ. You are what Peter says is an elect exile. You've been chosen by God, but now you're not living in the promised land. You live in the whole world where there's a lot of adversity against righteousness and God's kingdom. You're an elect exile. We're going to talk about that more next week. You are a sojourner in a land that you don't belong to. That's why Paul said to the Philippians that you are a citizen of heaven. It doesn't mean that your future is to be invisible and play harps and jump from cloud to cloud. A citizen of heaven means that your citizenship, your nationality, your natural citizenship, you're nat you've been a naturalized citizen of God's kingdom. You belong to his kingdom. And that can only happen by putting faith in Jesus and trusting him. Looking at how messed up and jacked up your life is and going, you know what, I trust what Jesus says about me, what he wants to do with me, and what, my, what he wants to do with my future. And you are a blesser of all ethnic groups. You are a blesser of all ethnic groups now. You are called to bring the gospel to the nations. Now, I know you're, you might be thinking, well, I'm, I'm not a missionary. You have a sphere of influence where you are living your life. And you are called to bring blessings to that sphere of influence. Primarily through living, sharing the gospel, but also being the redeemed humanized human, rehumanized human that you're called to be that Jesus talks about in Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake on account of my name. Blessed are you. Those are my people. And those blessings we are called to bring to others. That is who you are. So before you make a decision about college, high school kid, that you got to get this, that this is your story. Before you make a decision on who to marry or date, you've got to get this in your head, this in your heart. This is who you are. Before you take a job or take a career path, you've got to get this in your head. Before you quit a job, you've got to remember that this is you. Because God could have called you there to be a minister of reconciliation. Before you do anything with your life, any big decisions, before you figure out where to park at Walmart when you go shopping for Christmas, you got to get this in your head. This is who you are. This is your story. This is who you are. You. Say, this is me. I'm going to weigh over and I'm out of words. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so gracious. I pray, Father God, that we would really get it that we are in Christ, those of us who follow you, Jesus. And because we are in Christ, we inherit this story. We are grafted into this story, Paul says in the book of Romans. We become part of this story. This is who we are. Help us to never forget our identity. Help us to grow in understanding this. Let us be deeply convicted about these truths. This is me. This is me. Would you say that as a confession? This is me. And I pray, God, if there's anyone here who can't say that, this is me. I pray, Jesus, that they would. I pray that you would give them faith and save their hearts, raise them up. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, my dear friends. Have a great, great day. See you later.